Well, this morning we're going to be taking, uh, yeah, as you've seen from this passage, a, a step aside from our series of messages in 1 Corinthians and focusing on a, a wonderful passage in the, in the book of Ephesians that really will help us prepare our hearts as we go to the Lord's table this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 2. Also, if you have your bulletin, it is, I believe, printed in there um, for your reference as well. Paul's writing these words to the church as he's imprisoned in Rome. So this is real for him, the gospel message that he's sharing here. He's given his life to proclaim it, and he's writing it to a church that he loves. And one of the great themes of the book of Ephesians is that God has reconciled to himself a people. To himself, but also then he's reconciled a people to one another to come together as the church. And so in this book, and in the church that he's writing to, he has a strong desire to root them in a common understanding of who they are. And so in this passage, you can see he's, he's trying to give them a foundation. You were all spiritually lost. You were all dead before coming to, to know Christ. And so it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, whatever you are, we all have that foundational lostness apart from Christ. But, that, but Christ, in his great love for us, has made a way to reconcile us to him, but also us to one another. And that's one of the great themes of the book of Ephesians. The first three verses in this passage can be hard for some of us to understand for those that have grown up in the church, because the words are very strong, and we don't really have a recollection of being spiritually lost. But when we look at these verses this morning, I'm hoping that you'll consider, this is where I would be apart from God's gracious intervention at a young age in my life. But there's also going to be some of you that came to Christ as an adult, and you'll remember what it was like before you knew Christ, the spiritual lostness and depravity of being apart from him. But then there's also a third group of people here this morning, and that's those of you who have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I just want to say that I'm glad you're here this morning. You're welcome to be joining us at West Highland as often as you like as you're exploring the Christian faith. And I hope this morning that as we look at this passage, that you'll really see and understand and feel your need for a Savior as we look at this passage. And so let's look together at this passage in Ephesians 2. And again, we'll start with the first three verses that talk about our life apart from Christ. Paul shows us who we were apart from Christ with three descriptions. The first one is that we were dead. He says this uh, in the first verse, spiritually, we are dead. Apart from Christ, there's no life in us. This is completely opposite of what the world tells us, right? Our world tells us that we're fine, and in fact, we'll find life if we look within ourselves. The problems are on the outside, right? It's, it's, those, it's those structures, those power structures that are, that are hurting us, that are killing us. It's, it's other people that are hurting us. It's not, it's not us. We're fine. We just need to figure out who we are. Well, Paul here in verse 1 puts that idea to rest when he says, no, spiritually speaking, apart from Christ, we're dead. Most of us here have attended a funeral, at least at one point in our lives. And it's very shocking to come when you see the body of the person that you once knew, full of life, now laying in the casket, completely dead. Their lungs aren't breathing. 
their heart's no longer pumping. Spiritually speaking, that's our reality apart from Christ. There's no life in us. Again, I think in order to truly understand and appreciate the gospel, we need to be clear that we were dead apart from Christ. Not only does Paul say that we were dead apart from Christ, he also says that we are disobedient. If you look at verse 2, it starts by saying that we followed the way of the world. There's three ways that we, we are disobedient here. The first one is that we followed the way of the world. Again, apart from Christ, we follow the influences of the world. And it's hard not to, right? We're like fish swimming in water. We're not even aware of the, what, what is water. For us, it, it's hard not to be immersed in the culture that's around us and have that culture really leading us and guiding us. It takes intentionality not to just be pushed in the direction of the culture. So we follow the pattern of the world. If the world says that money is what you should be pursuing, prestige, a good job, then that's what we feel like we need to do. Apart from Christ, we're, we're just like the rest of the world. It also says that we are disobedient because not only we followed the ways of the world, but we also followed Satan. Now that's a pretty stark statement there from Paul. He says, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Elsewhere, Satan's referred to the God of this age. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone apart from Christ is possessed by Satan, but it just means that we, again, are, we're just flowing in a stream or a river that, that, that Satan is leading, and if we're not intentional to go against it, we're, we're going in the way that he is leading us. So we followed the world. We followed Satan. And then we're also disobedient because we follow our own sinful desires. Look at verse 3. It mentions living in the passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of our body and mind. In Galatians 5, Paul kind of spells out a little bit more what these sins are. He calls these things, and maybe they're true of some of us, anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, strife, dissension, and drunkenness. This isn't, these aren't, this isn't the most uplifting portion of Scripture, is it? These first three verses of Ephesians 2. We're kind of getting taken out to the woodshed by Paul here and telling us about what, what is true of us. We aren't getting our, our backs padded by Paul here. We're getting told some difficult truths of who we are apart from Christ. And Paul's not done. Look at the second part of verse 3. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. So we were dead, we were disobedient, and now it says we're doomed. In this statement, it says that because of sin and our sin nature, we're under the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment on us is righteous because he is holy. He is without sin. He cannot have sin in his presence. To be holy means to be set apart. God is set apart from us because we are sinners. Many of us in the past few weeks may have been doing some spring cleaning around our houses. And um, if you're anything like me, like say you're starting in the garage, you start very like strict. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go into every little corner and I'm gonna make sure everything is perfectly well put in place. 
if there's two cardboard boxes in the garage and I can get through enough stuff out that I can put it down to, two, to one, I feel really good about myself. And I'm doing, like at the beginning of the spring cleaning, I'm being very intentional and doing a very good job of it. But as the time passes, as the hours pass and I get tired, there's still a whole bunch of the house that's left to go. And the level of, uh, the level of cleanliness I'm looking for in what's left is a lot less than what I was looking for at the beginning. And we start to just kind of hide things or just put things away and just shove it somewhere. We sweep things under the carpet, so to speak, as the day goes on and we start to get tired. Well, God doesn't sweep things under the carpet. God cannot sweep things under the carpet. Our sin is judged by God and righteously judged by God. He will not just sweep our sins under the carpet. Each of us as sinners and in our sinful nature stand righteously condemned and judged by a holy God. And so as we finish these three verses from the beginning of Ephesians 2, these are some of the most sobering words about our reality apart from Christ in the whole Bible. If these words don't cause you to ponder and stop and think about your spiritual reality before a holy and righteous God, then I don't know what will. Again, apart from God, we are spiritually dead. We're disobedient. We follow the patterns of the world. We follow the patterns of Satan. We follow the passions of our flesh. And because of this, we're doomed. It says that we are by nature children of wrath. We stand under the righteous judgment of a holy God. And if this passage ended here, it would be one of the most depressing passages in all of the Bible. But it doesn't end here, praise God. <laughs> Instead, we get one of the most hope-filled two words in all of the Bible. But God. But God. God saw you where you were at apart from him, and he gracious and sovereignly interceded on your behalf. It's not inward that we look to for our saving. It's from a righteousness that's from outside of us. God looked on us and said, I am going to come in and intercede on their behalf. But God. Why does he act on our behalf? Well, it shows two reasons in verse 4. It's because he is rich in mercy and because he has great love. What is mercy? Mercy is simply not getting the bad things that we deserve. It is mercy that you don't get everything from verses 1 to 3 as your daily reality in your life. That's mercy. We're not getting the bad things we deserve. If you are in Christ, everything that was mentioned in verses 1 to 3 is no longer your reality. It's because God has great love for you. And what did he do for us? Well, it says, firstly, he made us alive in Christ. Remember, you were spiritually dead. You needed to be made alive. What can a dead person do to make themselves alive on their own? What can they do? Well, there's nothing but God. Just as Jesus stood over the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth! He looked over my 
spiritual state and said, Jamie, come alive. And if you're in Christ, you can insert your name there. That he spoke to your soul and your deadness and said, come alive. You have been made alive with Christ. Being made alive spiritually is called regeneration. It's the doctrine of regeneration. And this is really important. Christianity, it's not just about becoming a better person. You don't just come to church and clean yourself up, get rid of a few old bad habits and start a few new good habits, and that's the Christian faith. No, Christianity is, be, is coming alive from a place where you are spiritually dead. It's not about starting a new religious routine. It is about becoming a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is required of us who are dead in our sins is to be completely made new. This is why it's such good news that we were made alive with Christ. We had nothing in ourselves to do to bring ourselves to life. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love he has for you, has made you alive with Christ. Paul goes on and the good news continues. Look at verse 6. And raised us up with him. There's a clear connection to the resurrection of Jesus here. When Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, if you, were, if you are in Christ, you were also raised with him. The phrase with him is used several times in this passage, you'll see. We're made alive with Christ, we're raised with him, and it'll say we're seated with him. The idea is, here is like the English word sync or synchronized. You know when you sync your watches with someone or you, you back up your phone and you sync it to the cloud. You are connected. It, it, it's, everything that's true of one thing is now true of the other. Everything that's true of Christ now becomes true of you because you were raised up with him. When some, in some way, in some astonishing way, when Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, Jamie was raised 2,000 years ago. And if you're in Christ, you were raised as well. This is why even the two ordinance of, ordinances of the church, this morning we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of our union with Christ. Baptism, baptism is the picture of our union with Christ as we go down and then are raised with him. When we come to the table, we're reminded that we are united with him as well in his resurrection. So we're made alive in Christ, we're raised up with Christ, and it also says we're seated with Christ in verse 6 as well. When the Bible references Jesus being seated, it's talk about him being seated in his, in his position of royal authority. Jesus is seated like a king, and it says we are seated with him. This is part of the good news of the gospel, that to be seated with Jesus means we're being seated with him in his position of authority. We're not just raised with Christ and left to live in servants' quarters. We are with him as we are seated, as he is seated. God has invited us into his rule and reign, and we are now co-heirs with Christ. This is the beauty and the wonder of verses 4 and 5 and 6, that we're made alive in Christ, we're raised with Christ, and we're seated 
with Christ. All from coming from a place of spiritual deadness and lostness. Being disobedient and doomed apart from him. But God graciously intervened. But then there's one more thing he mentions in verse 7. In verse 7 it says that Christ will show us the immeasurable riches of grace. The word that's translated there, show, could also be translated display. So we're meant to display something. God wants to display how awesome he is, and the way he's going to do that is by showing you who are in Christ much grace, much riches of grace and mercy. It's amazing that he wants to display how awesome he is by showing goodness to each one of us here. This means that whatever you're going through right now, the best is yet to come. If you're going through something right now that you don't know how you're going to get through it, better days are coming if you are in Christ because Christ is preparing to show his riches of grace to you in the coming age. If you're 80, if you're 90 years old, your best days are still in front of you in Christ. This is why even sometimes when I'm talking about Jude and the loss of our son, the death of our son Jude, two and a half years ago, a phrase that I've often used is that Jude is happier today than he has ever been. For everyone that is in Christ, that is true of them. The best days for us are in front of us. This is because we will be experiencing the immeasurable Riches of grace and kindness in in the presence of our Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is what awaits each one of us. And so the question remains, how do these blessings of verses 4 to 7 get applied to us? And that's then what we'll see in verses 8 and 9. How do we go from being dead, disobedient, and doomed to being made alive, being raised, being seated with Christ, and being recipients of his marvelous grace. Verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does this great transformation happen? How do we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to be made alive in Christ? It's all by grace. It's by grace you've been saved and through faith. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Grace is the other side of the coin of mercy. Remember I said mercy is not getting the bad things we deserve. Well, grace is getting the good things that we don't deserve. What a blessing, mercy and grace from the living God. And it comes to us by faith. Faith means placing your trust in Christ. Faith means that you're believing that when Christ died and then was raised, triumphant over sin and death, that you were united to him in that. And that all of your sin and the things that you did are placed on Christ when he was on the cross and he paid the penalty for that sin. And then when he rose triumphantly, his triumphant, obedient life was placed on you. So that when God the Father looks on you, he sees the righteousness of Christ and not the sinful actions 
that you've made. Faith is just our human response to God's gracious, sovereign actions toward us. Faith is not a work. It comes as a gift from God. According to verse 10, it says we're saved for good works, not by good works. We're saved for good works, not by good works. Good works are what we produce as a result of our salvation. But in verse 8, when it says that it's a gift of God, it's referring to the whole of our salvation. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. We should never think of salvation as a transaction in which God provides the grace and we provide the faith. Remember, we were dead and we had to be awakened back to life. Everything that, was, that resuscitated us was the gift of a gracious God who brought us back to life, which includes our faith. And so because of that, there's no room for boasting. We're not saved because we're smarter than others. We're not... We're not saved because we're better looking or we come from a better family. Oh, it's all of God. There's no room for boasting. Everything good that we have has been given to us by God, and this is most clearly shown in our salvation. So brothers and sisters, as we go to the table this morning, remember that even as the plate goes by and you receive from the plate everything that you have in and your life that is good, including your salvation, is something you also received. It's a gift of God. And before we go to the table, just let me take a moment again and address those here today, just, just kind of checking Christianity out. If you're here and you're not sure what you really think about some of these things. Again, maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe uh, you've been here coming for a few weeks now, but you're still not sure what you think about about faith and about Jesus. What I've shared to you today is quite simple. We've all sinned against the gracious and loving God, but he's also holy. And again, because of that, that means we are under his righteous judgment. And right now, if you're apart from Christ, you've never placed your faith in him, then that's currently your spiritual condition, standing apart from him, holding out a righteousness of your own, hoping that God will look on you and see this is enough. But it will never be enough in front of a holy God. Again, each one of us on our own has lived in our passions of the flesh and carried out the desires of the body. And so we were by nature children of wrath. We were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. And this is frightening stuff. And I wouldn't be a caring and loving pastor if I didn't warn you about that. Even if you've gone to church for 20 years and you've never placed your faith in Christ, church attendance won't be enough. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, has made you alive in Christ, or offers to make you alive in Christ. He offers you the opportunity to be united together with Christ in his resurrection. He offers you the opportunity to be seated with him in the heavenly places. He offers 
that whatever you're going through, the best is yet to come because in the coming ages, he's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy toward you. So what do you need to do? In a sense, you don't need to do anything. You just need to receive something. Receive that gift that God is offering to you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at this point, I'd like to give all of us a chance to respond to the love and the grace and mercy of Christ this morning. Again, if you've never done so, let me just invite you to take in these next moments as we go quietly before the Lord to ask him to come into your life to to forgive you of your sin and to have his righteousness be placed in your account so that when you stand before God, you'll have the righteousness of Christ. And for those of you who are already believers in the Lord, take a few moments and just thank him for his grace that he has demonstrated to you. That although, we, again, we were dead in our sin, he made us alive in Christ. Confess any sin that the Spirit makes you aware of and then praise him for the great love he has shown you even when you didn't deserve it. Let's go before the Lord silently for a few moments now. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the riches of your mercy that you've shown to us and for the great love that you have for us. That even while we were sinners, you sent your son Christ to die in our place. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all the glory. We don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in you and what you've done by graciously loving us and showing us mercy. We praise you, Lord Jesus, as well, that you gave your life in our place, that you were made sin for us, so that in you we could become the righteousness of God. Thank you for your body that was broken for us, that as even as we go to the table, we're reminded that that body was broken, but that by faith, the righteousness that you earned can be placed on us, And Holy Spirit, I thank you for your work in our lives, that you draw us. Holy Spirit, I pray that even this morning you're drawing some who are currently apart from Christ, drawing them to him. Thank you that you drew us, for those that are in Christ, at one point, that we would see the beauty and the glory of Christ and receive him as our Lord and Savior. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are continually active in our life, giving us the strength and the courage and the obedience to follow him. Lord, I thank you this morning again that as we go to this table, we are not some, some people who bring things to you, but that we are just people that come and say, we need to receive from you. 
And so we do that again this morning as we go to the table. We pray this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip us all with everything we need to do his will, and may he work in us that which is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.